As we continue our summer journey together today, we're stopping at a place with which I think most of us, probably all of us, are familiar. We're going to be talking this morning about anxiety. Now, some of us are more anxious by nature than others. Maybe you just kind of live in a state of anxiety. Most of us have at least had moments or maybe days or weeks of anxiety. And sometimes people have lives that seem to be filled with anxiety. And anxiety can be difficult to talk about because we often worry, if we bring it up, that we're going to look weak or we're going to look like we're deficient or maybe even that people are going to think that we are crazy in some way. It seems like something that we should just be able to get over, that you should just be able to get through it and kind of push through it in your own willpower perhaps. There have been a few times in my life where I felt extremely anxious about something, pacing the floor, wanting to pull my hair out, wishing that there was some way to just get away from this situation that needed to be dealt with to escape it. And in those times, I found a few things that help with anxiety, breathing deeply or connecting with my spouse or speaking with friends and family or prayer, things of that nature. But to be honest, the things that you can do in a moment for anxiety only go so far and something more is needed for it than just a quick life hack or a momentary prayer that you pray. You need something bigger and deeper than that. And remember, in this series, we're not just looking at some, some tips about uh, you know, hot button issues. What we're asking is, what does the good news that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins raised him on the third day to new life, exalted him to his right hand where he reigns in heaven, and that he's returning to judge the world and to raise the saints to eternal life. What does that good news have to do with these matters? And today we're asking that of anxiety. What does the gospel say about anxiety? It strikes me that the world's most common advice to anxious people is stupid, given a secular worldview. Usually when, when somebody's upset about something and anxious, they, you know, sometimes even Christians, we or, or they will say something like, everything is going to be all right. Everything is going to be all right. But if you've got a secular, naturalistic worldview, that's perhaps the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Everything is not going to be all right. Without God, what possible reason does anyone have to think that everything is going to be all right let me show you what I mean from Matthew chapter 6, from the teaching of Jesus. We're going to start near the end of this teaching about anxiety, and we're going to look at the conclusion. And that way, when we come back to the imagery that he uses for anxiety, I think we're going to have a little bit better appreciation and understanding of what he means when he uses this imagery. So let's start with Matthew 6, 31 to 33, where Jesus says this, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well, or be added to you. I want you for a moment to key in on Jesus' comparison between Gentiles and his disciples. Jesus did not want his disciples, his followers, thinking about life and the world the same way that the Gentiles did. In the strict sense, Gentile meant someone who wasn't ethnically or religiously Jewish, but Jesus used the word in a popular way that had a bit of a negative connotation, similar to how we might use the word pagan. 
He met people who didn't believe in God. They had no trust in God. And so we can correctly apply Jesus' statement to people today. And the distinction, the comparison he's making is between how believers should think, those who trust God, and how those who do not have a trust in God or unbelievers view the world and think. The Gentiles thought of their relationship with their gods much, much differently than Jews thought about their relationship with God and much differently than Jesus wanted his followers to think about their relationship with God. Many Gentiles imagined gods that were very much like people. They had lives that were filled with drama and parties and politics and fighting and sensuality. These gods were so busy with their own heavenly drama that they had no time to pay any attention to what was going on on earth. They were a little bit like those absentee fathers in the 90s movies, you know, that had no time to pay attention to what was going on in their kids' lives. They were, they were just blissfully unaware. They were too busy with what they were doing. Some mythologies included gods creating humans as slaves. And so if you imagine you've got a, a worldview, a, an idea behind your, your life that the, the gods don't care, they're busy with their own stuff, or that they created you as a slave, then if you want to get something out of them, what are you going to do? Well, they ended up doing things like groveling, coming up with magic spells and incantations that would use words to try to convince gods that they would act on their behalf or give them something that they wanted. And in fact, this is exactly what Jesus was referring to earlier in the chapter when he said in Matthew 6, 7, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Their worldview taught them the gods are busy. If I want them to pay attention, I have to shout, yell, or talk an awful lot until I get a hold of their attention. The Gentiles' gods were distracted. They were indifferent to the people on earth. Now, you may think that talking about gods like this is a far cry from what we advanced modern Westerners believe about the universe. And while it's true that culture generally doesn't advocate belief in personal gods, it has still ended up in a very similar place to the Gentiles. It is important to note Jesus' teaching stands just as much in contrast to modern pagan notions of our Western culture as it did to the Gentiles. Scientific rationalism has taken over public thought and often undergirded, it's undergirded by an atheistic naturalism that has no room for God in nature anywhere. Christians are told that in order to do science properly, we must assume there is no God, which is a little bit ironic since it was Christians who began the scientific endeavor in the West based upon their belief that God created an orderly world that could be understood by the human mind. We're told to assume that material explanations are all we need to understand how we came to be and the desires that we have. Now, I, this is not the time, and I'm not the person to discuss the flaws of naturalistic evolution in detail, the theory that life evolved without any aid or any input from God. But it should be pointed out that it leads us exactly to the place where Jesus said Gentiles or pagans, unbelievers were, and disciples ought not to be. It leads us to seeking food, drink, and clothing, and other physical securities, and it teaches us that this is inevitable because it's been hardwired into us through the evolutionary process, 
and that really all there is to life is survival. I saw a video recently in which a man was discussing teenage rebellion, and he pointed out that when, when kids are young, their parents, they, they often think their parents are very smart, very wise, and then they hit about 13 is when it happens, I think, and suddenly their parents are the dumbest people on earth. Right? And, and to this point, you know, okay, good. It's like the opening of every comedy routine. That's kind of what, what he was doing. But then he proceeded to explain why. And so he, he said that this was an evolutionary impulse from 150,000 years ago on the African plains so that teenagers would be driven away from their families to other tribes during their prime fertile years to mate so there wouldn't be inbreeding in the tribes and then when they hit about 24, they'd start to realize, oh, their parents were kind of smart and want to come back and rekindle that relationship. And of course, he said this with the, the most scientific, knowledgeable demeanor possible he could. There are just two, two difficulties with what he said. One, he can't possibly know that. He doesn't know that. He has an assumption about where life came from, and he just applied that assumption to teenage rebellion. In other words, he just made it up. Second, he seems to be trying to comfort parents who are distressed by their children's rebellion, telling them it's just, it's just natural. But of course, if naturalistic evolution is so proficient at this, why did it leave an impulse in parents to stop that natural rebellion in their children? Furthermore, why make any moral judgments about the situation at all? Why comfort parents? Because all there is is survival. Who cares? Who cares about any of it? Why do we try to comfort ourselves at all? That's what he should have said based on his worldview. You know what? Your kids' lives don't matter anyway. Just let them rebel. That's what his worldview would lead him to say. But instead, he's trying to comfort. But comfort is not something that can be offered if all there is is survival. And when you die, it doesn't matter anyway. And I bring this up only as an example of how naturalistic and materialistic ideas are just assumed in much of our culture, in our public discussion, on social media, in education. They're not proven, but assumed as the explanation for everything. The contemporary materialistic view of the world, undergirded as it is by unaided naturalistic evolution, leads to a competing view of the world from what Jesus presents in Matthew chapter six. Because in a materialistic world, no one is looking out for you. There is no goal to your life. Your life cannot be worth more than a sparrow or a flower because at the end of the day, you're all just atoms banging around together in some pattern that is an accident of the universe. And there's nothing more to you than there is to them. And anxiety is just nature's way of keeping you alive so that you can reproduce. And it's even worse than that because when I say nature, I don't mean that this is something that intentionally did that or that knows what's going on. No, what they mean by nature is this is just, it just happened. It's a happy coincidence, a cosmic accident, and no one put any care or thought into it. And sadly, because we are exposed to this worldview in media and in conversations and in politics and in education and in our jobs and in the arts and in commerce because we see it play out in our culture and in our families because we watch the breakdown of mental health in our country and the onslaught of anxiety in people's lives. We hear about the increase of suicide. We're subject to the constant promotion of a perverse sexuality that is based on the idea that there is no morality, which is based on the idea that there's nothing behind it all that matters. There's no one who upholds it. There's no one who has any 
intention for it, then we may often, because it's so pervasive, be unaware of how we are influenced by this worldview, and as a result, why we're experiencing the consequences of a worldview without God. And since the consequence of a naturalistic, materialistic worldview that denies God is anxiety, then sometimes we get anxious. And, the, and though the advocates of this worldview claim that you can have a meaningful, moral, fulfilled life while believing it, more often than not, the fruit of the worldview shows up in the souls of those who hold it as frustration and anxiety. And the worldview only allows you to comfort yourself with secondary things, not ultimate things. But no amount of medication or meditation or breathing techniques or CBD or THC is going to cure your anxiety. Jesus says that anxiety is not the result of a bit of worry. It's not just the result, too much stress in your life. Jesus says that anxiety is a worldview problem, that you're not looking at the world correctly. So if you want to be free of anxiety, it doesn't mean that you learn a few life hacks. It means that you uproot one worldview and you replace it with an entirely different one. Jesus says it this way, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's the test of whether you've got the right worldview. The common worldview of our culture will not permit that. It can't. It's founded on the idea that you must scrape and claw and fight to survive. So if you're able to put God's kingdom first, you'll know you've got an entirely different worldview. You should evaluate your worldview if you want to overcome anxiety. And in the verses we're about to read, we don't discover some tricks to manage anxiety. What we find in these verses, and we've read them so often that they might seem so common, so straightforward to us, that we feel as if there's nothing astounding, nothing new about them. But what we find in these verses is not a few hacks. What we find is dynamite to blow up a worldview and the blueprints with which to replace it. We find the gospel uprooting our cultural assumptions we didn't know still existed because of how we have been influenced by culture. And this morning, I wanna ask you and challenge you, will you let the Holy Spirit pull out the influences of the naturalistic worldview and replace them with the desires of God's kingdom? Or do you prefer to resist and cling to your anxiety? A few years ago, I was at a college graduation. The person who was responsible for giving the invocation at this graduation uh, or giving the opening prayer, he began his prayer something like this. He said something to the effect of, oh, source of all that is right and good, origin of love and light that connects all of us together and brings harmony and peace, center of all being that unites all humanity, which loves and teaches us to love no matter our creed. And they just kept going and going and going with the most benign, vanilla, non-committal prayer you've ever heard. He was trying so hard not to offend anyone and to include everyone and to address everything at once that, of course, he ended up addressing no one at all because no one could possibly agree with what he was saying. In contrast, notice how Jesus teaches us to begin our prayers. Our Father in heaven, how perfectly simple and direct. 
Jesus says far more in this phrase than all the windy words of the invocation at that college on that day. Jesus, through these few words, launches a missile into the heart of anxiety. In this one word, we are taught that we are not merely soothing ourselves with breathing techniques and safe spaces. Here we discover that we are not speaking to a God who needs to be convinced to pay attention in order to love us. The hidden assumptions of a naturalistic worldview that have begun to seep into our thinking about God and life and your values are crushed with this one word, Jesus, not only gives you permission, but commands you to speak when you pray, Father. It crushes a naturalistic worldview. The Son of God, who died for your sin, invites you and commands you to address God, not as a meditation, not as an idea merely to be contemplated, not as a reluctant master or a disinterested ruler, but he invites and commands you to address God as Father. That means that God is personal. He is no mere thought or idea. He is a person, and it means he is relational, because if you call him Father, that implies that you are his child, and it means that he cares for you. And so that you don't get the wrong idea, about this, Jesus assures that you move toward the right image of the Father. If you don't have a good Father, that's no reason for you not to experience the love of God the Father. This week, a bishop in the Anglican Church, uh, I think he tweeted it, which, you know, great, Twitter. Um, I think he tweeted that we, we, need to, we need to look at whether we should actually address God as Father anymore because it might be difficult for those who had a, a hard upbringing and it's not, you know, anti-patriarchy enough. How stupid. That anyone who claims to speak on behalf of God is going to say, I think I know better how to address God than Jesus, his son. Listen, if you had a bad upbringing and you don't have a good earthly father, that is no reason for you not to experience the love of your heavenly father. Jesus does not intend you to think that God is like your earthly father. Rather, he wants to show you what kind of good father you have in heaven. And so he says this, Matthew 6, 25 to 30. He says, look at the birds. No, excuse me. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Whose heavenly Father feeds the birds and clothes the grass of the hillsides with wildflowers? Yours, not theirs. It's not the bird's father that takes care of them. It's not like the grass takes care or provides for the flowers. It is your father who takes care of these things. He is so good that he even notices things that we don't notice much and don't think matter. He takes care of sparrows and wildflowers. And if your father is good enough to do that, don't you think he'll notice you? 
Don't you think he'll feed you? Don't you think he'll take care of you? He is not their father, yet he shows value for them. Since he is your father, don't you think he values you more? But I'm getting ahead of myself here. The invitation to address and know God as Father gives us an insight and an assurance so profound that it's like lobbing a grenade into the heart of anxiety. This is it. Someone cares for you. And not just someone, the person behind all of reality, this creator who holds it all together, he cares for you. Now, I know that that doesn't sound particularly profound, especially to say it in church. God cares for you. That's obvious, right? Everybody knows that. You all woke up this morning and already knew, God cares for me. I'm going to church. What would I expect the pastor to say except that God cares for me? So, of course, but think about it this way. Put it in the context of the worldview of our culture and what you are constantly bombarded with and taught. People are absolutely clamoring to know that someone cares for them. They yearn for attention and affection and search for it in so many different forms, but it's always eluding them. They are They cannot know care because their own worldview will not allow them to know care. The very presupposition upon which they have built their lives and their identity and their morality, it prohibits them from being cared for. If it's a cosmic free-for-all, a struggle for survival, if you can just do what you want because there's nothing behind it all anyway, the profoundly sorrowful conclusion to which this inevitably leads is that there's no one behind it to care for you. No one cares. Yeah, you might have some friends and stuff that say they care, but at the end of the day when you're alone, you cannot think there's anybody who ultimately cares about your life because you deny that there's anybody there. Behind it all, behind the struggle, the pain, the difficulty, the longings for love and the value and the longing for meaning, there is nothing but a cold, dark, blank universe that doesn't care because it cannot care. But Christian Jesus has come to you, and he screams from the cross, God cares for you. He cares for you. He cares so much that he will not do what the world does. He cares so much that he will not leave you alone. He will not make safe spaces for you away from him. Instead, he gets his rod and his staff and he disciplines and he leads you until he brings you in your life to streams of quiet water where your soul can receive real rest. God cares for you. Believer, you must not lose this profound distinction from your worldview. It matters that you know that that God cares. You must not become a practical atheist succumbing to the deceit of anxiety. For anxiety is the fear that no one cares, at least not in the ultimate sense. No one cares enough to do anything. But Jesus says to us, oh, you of little faith, God cares. He cares with the blood of his son Jesus shed on the cross, with the resurrection from the dead, with the down payment of the spirit, and with the promise of heaven. God cares. Let him care. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. How do you remind yourself that God cares? How do you remind yourself that you have a heavenly father who cares? Do the things, not that are hacks for overcoming anxiety, do the things that strengthen the right worldview. 
Do the things that strengthen a Christian view of the world, a Jesus view of the world. When you find yourself overwhelmed by anxiety, it's possible that you've allowed the influence of the world too much into your life. It could be coming from habits you learned from your family as you grew up or from the people that you've watched as friends who've given you hints about what to do when you're anxious and haven't pointed you to the Lord. It may be coming from the entertainment that you're taking in or the advice you're listening to. You may need to confess and turn off and cut off some of those things from your life and then strengthen yourself in the Lord by doing the simple things that build up a Christian worldview. Read his word. Pray, join believers in worship, and, and, and join maybe in, in fasting, maybe would, would help you with this because fasting is to lay aside the drives and desires of your life in order to seek God in prayer. You give up food in order to pray, participating in worship when we gather as well as by yourself, and praising the Lord publicly and privately. All of these things help to remind you intentionally and build up that worldview that says, God cares. And these are not quick tips. I'm not telling you that if you go home this afternoon and you've been anxious about something and you say a quick prayer, it'll be like a switch was flipped. I mean, God can intervene in those moments. He can. And he can comfort you with his love in those moments when you call out to him, when you cry to him for help. But as you do that, you should also be saying, where do I need to replace the influence of a worldview that says there's no one that cares with the influence of Jesus who says, God cares, and I get to address him as Heavenly Father. Build up that worldview so that what you're doing regarding anxiety in your life is not looking for quick momentary solutions, but you have a deep, deep foundation that when trouble comes and bad news is received, you have something that you've already built in your life that you'll fall back on immediately and you'll know God cares. He cares with the cost of his son's life. You should evaluate your worldview if you want to overcome anxiety and that starts by understanding that God cares. He cares for you because if you've come to him by faith in Jesus, he is your father. But Jesus reminds us of another part of our contemporary worldview that needs to be challenged. Look at Matthew 6, 25 again. It says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Of course, we know Jesus' intended answer to these rhetorical questions. The, the answer is intended to be yes, the life is more than food. Yes, the body is more than clothing. But think of how our contemporary worldview must answer these questions. I'm not saying that people don't try to answer them, saying, oh, life is more than these things. I'm saying, what does their worldview logically lead them to? What are the implications for our lives and our thoughts? if what we're saying about reality is there's no one who created it and upholds it and sustains it through his son Jesus. Je what it means is that they have nothing to fall back on and they must answer these questions in this way. Is, the life more than, is, is life more than food? Is the body more than clothing? They have to say, no, that's exactly all there is to life. It might sound funny to put it that way, but put it in maybe a more common uh, materialistic parlance or, or words. You might put it this way. Is not life more than survival? But given the contemporary worldview, then no, life is not more than survival. Life boils down to just that, and that's all. Life is just 
survival. We saw this play out during COVID, didn't we? People were willing to give up liberty, connection, love, even obedience to God in some cases, merely to survive. Anxiety flourished while men and women survived. They tore each other down, criticized anyone who differed with their views and their politics during that period on what ought to be done as they struggled to survive. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we ought to be lovers of death, but I am saying that we ought not miss the connection between what Jesus says about anxiety and what he does when he calls us to discipleship. He says this, whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, your life is more than survival. If your faith is in Jesus, then you have the assurance of eternal life. If your father gives the assurance of eternal life, why would he fail to give you whatever, what else you need? And I'm not saying everything that you want he'll give or everything that you think you need will be given. I'm saying he gives us what we need. Jesus says that you can entrust your life to God and you can live for his glory because life is more than survival. Don't just live to survive. Maybe if we're honest with ourselves, even though we purport to have a Christian worldview, we find the habits and patterns of our lives too often leaning in the direction that all I'm doing while I'm here is just trying to make it. I'm just trying to survive. We adopt the, the ideas of the world perhaps that we, we say, uh, you know, everybody's working for the weekend. And that's all I'm doing. I'm just trying to survive so I can have a little fun so that I can survive next week and have a little more fun the next weekend. And that's, that's what my life boils down to. I'm just trying to survive. But as a believer in Jesus, life is more than survival. And so Jesus gives us these instructions. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the will and desires and the priorities of your heavenly Father. That Jesus has said, you get to call Father. Seek his kingdom first. He says, seek that kingdom first. Notice he doesn't say, seek it also. He says, seek it first the only way you'll be able to obey God with your life is if you know that life is more than survival. You'll never trust his will or his priorities if you think that life is just survival because his will often contradicts what our culture says must be done for survival. We can chalk up a lot of sin to this idea. Greed, rebellion, adultery, thievery, deceit, abuse, a whole lot of other moral evils are often driven by people's desire to fulfill their drives and to survive. But life is more than survival. And so if you want life, you'll have to do more than merely survive. You'll have to seek your heavenly Father's kingdom first. And what does it mean to seek his kingdom first? It means that we find out what God wants and we do it. This is a strange suggestion to ears who are used to hearing the words of a naturalistic culture. Even churchgoers sometimes, and religious people, sometimes find it difficult to hear the idea, I'm going to find out what God wants to do. I can find out what God wants, and I can, I can do it. I can obey. But God has revealed what he wants. He's revealed what he wants in his word. He continues to reveal his desires through the, the application of that word in the lives of believers and through the Holy Spirit who speaks to and leads us. Is it possible that our anxieties stem not just from momentary issues, but from a lack of trust in God? Not only is it possible, 
I think it seems likely. And if that's the case, willful ignorance of what God wants and disobedience is the evidence, perhaps, that we don't trust God as we should. You don't believe his way is best. You don't believe that life actually comes through him. You're still seeking to find life elsewhere. For example, if you know the right thing to do is to forgive someone, but you refuse, perhaps because it's not just because you're hurt and angry. Maybe the reason you refuse to forgive is actually because you don't trust that God will be just and do what's right. Or maybe if you're, you're sleeping with, with your, your girlfriend or your boyfriend, even though you know this is not what God wills, what he wants for relationships, maybe it's not because you found true love, but maybe it's because you're afraid that if you don't do that, you won't ever have true love because you don't actually believe that God and his love are sufficient for you. Life is more than survival. God has plans for your life. And when you try to find out what God wants and do it, you're demonstrating your trust in your heavenly Father and that you've got a worldview that overcomes anxiety. You're no longer driven by by drives of a materialistic worldview that lead to fear, but by faith in God that destroys anxiety. Seeking your heavenly Father's kingdom first is not just a command. It's also a test. You can tell what kind of worldview you actually have based on whether you prioritize seeking God's kingdom. Because anxiety is not just that worried feeling that we get. Sometimes people think, I'm not an anxious person because they're not, they don't have that worried feeling or, or they, don't, they don't respond with panic to situations so they think, I'm not anxious. But anxiety is also the drive to just keep going and keep working and keep surviving and ignore what God desires, and what he wants. It drives us to distrust of our Heavenly Father by putting our wants and our needs above his will. So if you want to know whether the cultural worldview has seeped into your own heart and life, you can prayerfully examine whether you actually seek God's kingdom first. Have the anxieties of life choked out his word and and his voice from your life? Does honest reflection of your life reveal that you trust God's care? You believe that he is the heavenly father who loves you and will take care of you? Or does honest reflection reveal that you're really worried about what will happen if you do trust him and don't seek to fulfill all your own needs and desires, but trust him to do that, you may be afraid he won't actually come through. What does this command of Jesus, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What does this command say when you test your heart against it? I'm going to ask you if you bow your heads for just a moment. We're going to respond with communion in just just one moment, but before we do that, I want to give this call, because there may be some here who don't have a relationship with God as Father, and you've never put your faith, your trust in Jesus as the Savior You've never known faith in your life that could redeem you. Perhaps you've prayed a prayer at some point. Maybe you thought that by doing good works and and, and kind of doing good deeds, you'd build up to, to being saved, that God would be happy with that. The issue with this is that this is not what the Word of God teaches us. And it's not the gospel. It's not the good news. The good news is not that you could work hard enough or try long enough. The good news of Jesus is this, that although you've sinned by 
doing things that do not please God, by participating in a world that doesn't honor Him, and by rebelling against Him with your heart and your life, that God still loves you. And He loved you enough to send His Son Jesus to die for your sin. He died on the cross, shed His blood, so that the penalty for your sin, death, could be paid. And on the third day, after He had died, God the Father raised Him from the dead to demonstrate that sin had been paid for and there was new life available. And the Bible says there's just one way for you to know salvation and be right with God, and that's through Jesus, His Son. Perhaps your life has been filled with all kinds of anxieties and worries and frets and stress, and you know that your life, even though maybe you don't have that feeling of worry constantly, you know that your life is constantly being driven by desires that don't honor God and that indicate really all you're concerned about in life is, I want to survive. I want to feel okay. I want to be all right. The difficulty is that if what I'm saying this morning is true, I believe it is, the question is, do you? If what I'm saying is true, then you can't be all right simply by pursuing your drives and your desires. And in fact, if, if you're not a believer in Jesus, the worldview that perhaps you've held to this point is that, well, there's really no way to be all right because all there is is survival. But perhaps on hearing the good news this morning, on hearing that there is a God who loves you, who wants to be your heavenly Father, who sent his Son to redeem you, there's something in your heart, there's something in your spirit that says that is true. You need to believe it. There's something going on in your heart that is stirring you, that is pushing you to say, you need to trust this. You need to believe this. That's God. That's his spirit working in you this morning. And I want to I encourage you, don't ignore that. Because God did create you. And he does love you. He loves you at the cost of his son Jesus. But that love, contrary to what some people say, the love that he wants to give you, the freedom he wants you to know, is conditional. It's conditioned on one thing. It's not conditioned on you being good enough. It's not conditioned on you being brave enough or big enough or smart enough or beautiful enough, loving him long enough. It's not conditioned on any of that. It's conditioned on one thing. Will you believe in Jesus? Will you accept his gift for salvation? The scripture says this, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. That's the only condition. Will you call on Jesus to be saved? This morning, if you'll confess with your mouth that he's Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, providing the forgiveness for your sins, you'll be saved. And so I wanna ask you to do something simple, but important. This isn't for, to show me anything. It's just so that you have a way to respond, to act on what God is calling you to do this morning. If that's you, you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, by faith in him, if you've never confessed your sin, repented, and believed God to save you through his son Jesus, and today you sense that stir, that call, and you want to respond to that in faith, I'm going to ask you if you would just stand. If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, and this morning you want to begin that relationship and put your faith in him, would you stand? I'm going to wait for just a moment. This isn't so that you can please anyone. It's just so you can move in your, in your body and in your spirit toward the Lord and say, yes, God, I want to respond to you today. Is there anybody like that? You don't have that relationship with God through Jesus. This morning, I hope that that indicates that you're right with the Lord. If that's the case, we're going to do something today to respond to the message and to, and to 
turn our eyes to Jesus. We're going to take communion together. And so if you received communion as you came in, the elements, would you go ahead and get those? If you didn't, would you just lift up your hand? There are a couple of folks who will take those uh, and, and get them to you right now. open the bread and hold that. Of course, the bread represents the body of Jesus. And it's profound to realize that Jesus became human for you and I. And this means that the anxieties that we feel, he's not far away from those things. He knows the weakness of our flesh. He knows the difficulties of temptation. He knows the difficulties of what it means to be tempted toward anxiety. He prayed in Gethsemane, Lord, if it, if it is, if it is uh, possible, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. He cried from the cross, why have you forsaken me? He knows what that is. And that means that when you come to God in prayer, you're not praying to a father who has no idea, who can't understand what's going on. You're not coming to someone who has no idea of your weakness. When you pray about your anxiety, you're not coming to someone who, who thinks that you're just a weak loser because you're anxious about something. You're coming to a God who understands and he intended to understand when he sent his son in the flesh. How amazing is that? Think of the contrast between the worldview that says, oh yeah, there are a bunch of disinterested gods who don't care much about your life, or our common worldview today, which is there's nothing behind it all, and nobody cares, and the faith and the truth that there is a God who cared so much that he sent his son to become flesh. That's profound. That's a deal breaker for anxiety. So as you hold the bread in your hand, be reminded God cares at the cost of his son, Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your care. We thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to die for us. We thank you that he was no phantom, he was no ghost. He wasn't a trick, he wasn't a mirage, but he was a human being. We thank you that he experienced what we do. He knows temptation, he knows difficulty, and yet he did it without sin. And so we come to him today as our great high priest who knows exactly what we need to overcome as we go through these things. We thank you that he did not give up faith so that we would have an example to follow, but not only an example to follow, but so that we would have uh, uh, someone to strengthen us and enable us. And today, Lord, as we look to him, we thank you, Father, that you have that you've been so willing to show your care that you would give him for us. Help us, Lord, not to move from that care. Help us, Lord, not to move away from it to something else. Help us to remember, even as we're going to take this bread in just a moment, help us to remember Jesus is in us. Someone cares. God cares. My Father cares. In Jesus' name, let's take the bread together. open the cup. The cup represents the blood of Jesus shed for the forgiveness of our sins. How amazing is it that God would not only send his son to become like us, yet without sin, but that he would send his son to bear our sin 
on the cross when he shed his blood. So that not only does Jesus understand our weakness, but he's paid for the failures of our weaknesses. What assurance and anxiety that I have a God who loved me enough, a Father who cared enough that he would send his own son to shed his blood, to assure me of his love, to offer me forgiveness and freedom. How that ought to break our anxiety. God, we pray that you would forgive us for so often we get anxious about the things of life. We get the bad news. We have those feelings that come up in our hearts. We have the unexpected troubles and trials of lives. We get the opinions of others that we're concerned about and anxieties flourish in our hearts. When you offer the blood of Jesus to cleanse and secure those hearts. Please forgive us, Lord, that we so often forget that you gave your son and we're more interested in, in what the next day or two is going to hold than in the fact that you've secured us for eternity. That we're so worried about tomorrow that we forget today God loves me as a father and he's taken care of me. Lord, as we take communion, may we be reminded of this. May our hearts and souls be anchored in it. And we pray that you would uproot the evil influences of our culture and of its worldview, and you'd replace it with faith in your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's take the cup together. Would you stand with me, church? The Apostle Paul wrote, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so communion is not only looking back, it is a looking forward to Jesus' return. And so as we prepare to close this morning, would you join me in just a moment of rejoicing and thanking God for what he's done. Would you lift your voice in your hands and let's praise the Lord for a moment. Lord Jesus, we praise you. Jesus, we give you thanks and honor. Lord, we worship you and give you glory because we know your son and we know that he's returning. We thank you that you've given us an anchor for our hope. We thank you that you've given us something that defeats anxiety. We thank you, Lord, that you have overcome through your son. Teach us, Lord, to trust you. Teach us, Lord, to believe you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. As you prepare to go, I want to encourage you if you've been struggling with anxiety in your life, my intent today was not to say, hey, it's no big deal, just get over it. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying, hey, you're a really bad Christian, just get over it. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is put your trust in Jesus. And if you'd like to come and seek the Lord and pray for a moment, there'll be some folks, some, some prayer partners and pastors available. We would love to agree with you and pray for God's work to take place deep in your heart, that anxiety might be replaced with more trust in Him. And we would not, don't think of that as something to be ashamed of, but as something that we would rejoice with you in, agreeing with you about. Thank you for being with us as you.